Hey everybody, it is episode 12 of the Running Rogue podcast. I'm here as always with Steve. Hey Steve. Yo, yo. And we have our guest from episode number four, where we talked about running footwear and overpronation, Dr. Kim Davis with us from, from Run Lab. Welcome, Kim. Hi there. We're going to be talking with Kim today, Dr. Davis, I should say, because that's more formal, right? About <laughs> running form. <laughs> running form and everything you should know about running form. We've got... We're going to cover some mythology about running form and also some things you can do, some no-risk, no-brainer things you can do to improve your running form. So we'll get to that in just a second. As always, we start with some current events and some topical things before we dive into our main topic. And this time, we're first going to talk about the 90-plus-year-old 60-meter dash championships at the recent USA Masters indoor meet. Many of the folks may have seen this there's a video going around social media on it but a 92 year old man faced off with a 99 year old man in the 60 yard dash and the 99 year old individual out leaned him for the win nipped him at the wire so if you haven't seen that video we'll post it in our show notes so you can watch it but definitely watch it personally i can't stop watching it because <laughs> it's so cute i mean these two guys 90-plus years old going at it. It takes them 18 seconds to finish <laughs> 60 meters, so they're not doing it fast. It's it's sort of like watching someone run in slow motion, but they're getting it done at that age, which is impressive, and a reminder that you can still run for a long time if you just keep using your legs. Yeah, it was pretty interesting to watch them pop up. You know, I, At first yeah. I thought, man, that's a pretty quick pop up out of the blocks and then I realized oh they weren't using blocks they were just standing <laughs> still and they still popped up even from a standing start so yeah. um, but you know I don't I'm sure those two gentlemen um, would would probably take a little bit of uh, a little of but have a little affront about you calling them cute I'm sure that that's not what <laughs> right. they would like to hear but it is really cool to see um, the competitive spirit at every level and at every age group and with folks doing many different events so uh you know it's i think the human spirit needs competition and seeing two 90 plus year old gents get after it um and the fact that it's resonated so much with people who see it whether they're running fans or not is really really cool um it, it's a it's a great thing to see and it's a reminder that if you just keep training <laughs> you can do this as long as you really want that's the beauty of running is that it is truly a lifetime sport certainly some people have degenerative things like arthritis that might prevent that but most people don't and if you just keep using it then you still got it all the way till 99 i hope i can be moving that well at that age thank goodness they weren't running the marathon <laughs> right. that's all i can say it took him 18 seconds to get 60 meters it's pretty good that we weren't running 26.2 but uh yeah that you know it also makes me think a little bit about the folks who I, who we coach who are trying to get boston qualifiers and they always come to me and sort of sheepishly say well i'm aging up this year so it'll be a lot easier for me to get my boston qualifier and i'm always of the opinion that this the Boston Qualifier is a representation of what's been going on statistically in the United States and around the world in marathoning. And so that is still an appropriate time for you. You just are now getting to the point where, um, like wine, you're getting better and better with <laughs> yeah. age. So, uh, don't be you ashamed. know, it, don't be ashamed. Embrace it and recognize that, again, competition is part of who we are as people. And it's, it's a great thing. Dr. Davis, from your perspective, what do you think? Have you treated patients that are that old 80 plus 
Uh, we've had a couple that are 80 plus. Now, I don't think into their 90s, but uh, but really, even to your point, people with arthritis and arthritic joints and even hip replacements, we've seen it all. And uh, as long as you, to the whole point of this podcast, as long as you work on your mechanics and be your own best self, you can run well into almost you know the grave i guess which <laughs> right? is great hopefully the ideal for everybody <laughs> but uh yeah we've definitely worked with a lot of a lot of elderly runners awesome so the other thing we wanted to cover and i guess as i said we'll post the video of that so you can watch it if you haven't seen it in our show notes the other thing we wanted to cover in our intro is something we haven't covered yet at all which is adventure racing there's often a running component dr davis is an avid adventure racer doing races up to 72 hours in length but lots of 24-hour races and races of other distances. So we wanted to cover off on adventure racing in Central Texas and get a little bit of a feel from Dr. Davis because you're in it, what that's all about. My personal experience with adventure racing was watching the Eco Challenge in college <laughs> when, when Mark Burnett decided to latch onto that as a TV event. And I was absolutely fascinated watching Ian Adamson and, and those guys go at it over eight or nine days through Borneo. But tell me how you came into adventure racing and what it's like for you now in the sport. Yeah, so I got into adventure racing probably 10 years or so ago because I've always done, well, not always, but in my late 20s, gotten to triathlon and doing Ironmans and all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of got, got bored with the process of that because adventure racing has this real mental element to it because not only is it trail running and kayaking and mountain biking, but it's all based around wilderness orienteering. So you're out there with a map and compass trying to find checkpoints and find your own way through the woods. You can choose whatever route you want to take to get to these checkpoints and just find them as fast as you can. So there's a real mental component to it. And that's what drew me into the sport in the first place. And so the first thing I had to do was just learn how to how to read a map. A lot of the races around here. So there's a company called Too Cool Racing that puts on most of the local races in, in Texas and uh, in central Texas. And they always have a very beginner-friendly course where they'll, they'll teach you some map reading skills and, and give beginners a lot of practice in the sport. But, yeah, it's just a really – it's a really great thing for people who are kind of looking for that next step where maybe they're, they're you know, they're fit enough to do triathlons and road running races and things. But, one, you kind of get burnt out if that's all you ever do. And also, I think from a fitness perspective – and I know we'll get into this a little bit later – but the more cross-training and, you know, lateral movements you make in your training life, the more well-rounded athlete you can be so I think a sport like this is very cool and complimentary to people who just enjoy running in general but also people who like being out in the woods and, and doing fun adventurous stuff and this stuff lasts for a long time, right? I mean, you, you're out there. This yeah. isn't like a, an hour long Yeah, no, uh, not you, no, 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 no. <laughs> Will you give us a little yeah. bit of a sort of an overview of what, what it's what like? Statistic, yeah, what's happening out on the course? What, yeah. What's going on? Yeah, so typically the races that, that are the, the local races are anywhere from uh, four to six hours on the short end for the, the newbies. And then they are typically 12 to 24, sometimes 36 for people who are a little more experienced. And you don't sleep. Like, like you said, Chris, I've done them as long as 72 hours and you, you know, you sleep very, very little, maybe three or four hours through the whole thing. Um, but you just, you try to work through the night and you, uh, you have map for each leg with new checkpoints to go find and you go in and out of transition throughout the, the entire race. And they don't usually tell you anything, but what kind of gear you need to bring to the race. Otherwise you don't know anything about the race until you show up on race day. Then they hand you your first map and say, first leg is whatever you know mountain biking and you go out for two or three hours get a bunch of checkpoints come back and they say okay now you get in the boat or whatever it is so that's kind of how they work and they typically 
I guess say most of the races around here are, are 12 to 24 hours for the more adva- uh, more advanced people and then probably four to six for the newer people. Cool. Yeah, it's awesome. It's and there's sport. a team component, component usually, correct? Yeah, so I've raced uh, I've raced solo and I've raced up to four-person team. And so kind of the traditional, like you talked about, Eco Challenge back in the day, um, they still do Primal Quest, which is a very similar type of race uh, that's uh, uh, seven days, I think six or seven days. Um, and those are always four-person teams, typically co-ed, so at least usually one female on the team. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a team component, which I think is really cool. It adds another dynamic both good and bad you know if you don't choose wisely that that uh you get into your third day of racing with the wrong teammate and it's a it's a rough day so uh, <laughs> i've done all varieties and i think as long as you choose choose well it can be a really cool experience for families to do these things together um husbands and wives teams i mean you come you know pain makes you closer right it, it draws people together so when you suffer together i think that can be a really good bonding experience for people the only adventure racing tip i have for people doing the long distance ones i got from ian adamson we hosted him for a talk one time, and he's, for those that don't know, he's sort of the godfather of adventure racing. From 15 years ago, world, many-time world champion, when they had world championships for adventure racing. And he was here, he, he came from an endurance kayaking background, but he was here talking about running form because he was at the time working for Newton Running and, and doing some things on running form. His tip was, he said, we always slept four hours out of every 24 hours on the winning teams and no one thought we slept because we were winning and we th- <laughs> and we were moving so quickly we would hide off the trail or off the beaten path <laughs> sleep for four hours out of every 24 and then we'd be fresh but people kept thinking we were disappearing and taking shortcuts when we were really <laughs> just sleeping but that kept them fresh enough to go for seven eight nine days sometimes and so i thought that was always interesting he's like you know the sleep was actually the key for them winning so it's such a super go. important thing and people really you know you think when you get into this sport and you've been in it for a while you start to undervalue that and you, you i mean i've hallucinated in every adventure race that i've done that's been over 36 hours and it's always the same hallucinations this guy in a wheelchair <laughs> racing me up the hill and he sh- when I, he shows up i know that i've like pushed it one <laughs> point over the line <laughs> it's time to take a little bit a little bit of a nap um but uh, uh yeah and you start to see it after about 30 30 32 hours or so you start to see teams just all of a sudden you'll come around a corner there'll be a team sprawled out in the middle of the road sleeping you know they're packed everywhere and yeah. yeah it's just a it's a it's a funny sport but that's a recurring dream i have being <laughs> chased, chased by, by a guy in a wheelchair old man in a wheelchair <laughs> yes <laughs> i've had that recurring dream you know you also said though that you haven't really raced until you've hallucinated in a race it's a true story it's which, a true story i thought was interesting he's like you haven't really pushed your limits until you've hallucinated <laughs> so there's that are there any races coming up that people might look out for if they were yeah. a newbie that might consider jumping there into adventure racing. There are two. Racing. There okay. are two. And if they go to the Too Cool Racing site, it's T-O-O, Too Cool. Um, there is a, there's a race on April 1st that is a couple hours away, and it has options anywhere from six hours just on foot. You don't even have to have a mountain bike or a boat, all the way up to they're trying to put on a 24-hour race as well. And then there's a 12-hour race that same weekend. That'll be in Perry, Perry Haynes State Park, and it's awesome. And then the one that I would really, really recommend is coming up over Memorial Day weekend. That'll be down in Rock Springs, Texas, and it's called Spread Your Wings. And they do it, they base it out of a church camp. And so you can go down there and either camp or stay in one of the cabins. You can bring your whole family, super, super family friendly. And they've got zip lines and a waterfront with obstacle course. They throw all this stuff into the race. So you're out there racing for 12 hours if you're on the advanced, you know, on the, on the longer course. But they throw all this 
cool stuff like going into a mine shaft and you know doing the zip line and all this fun stuff into the race it's it's one of the best adventure races i've ever done and i've been doing it for a long time so i really really recommend it cool check out two cool yeah, racing. two cool racing i like it all right so we've got plenty to cover on our main topic so we're going to jump into that we're going to be talking about running form as i mentioned at the top dr davis is our expert from run lab that's what they do you if you've listened to episode four you've gotten her introduction but our basic premise of the show today that we're going to dive into is that there's no one perfect form of running that really it's all about finding your perfect form or at least improving your personal efficiency within how your body works we're going to cover this in sort of three sections first we're going to talk about myths what are the myths that are out there about running form second we're going to talk about common running form issues that dr savis sees at run lab and then finally what can you do about it you know what can you do to improve your form sort of the the no risk no brainer things you can incorporate into your own training so that's going to be our show we'll start with the myths this is our favorite part. We get to debunk some things that people may be thinking. <laughs> and the first one I already referenced a little bit, which is that there is no perfect running form. Dr. Davis, I'm going to throw this to you. There's things out there that espouse sort of a, a perspective on a type of form that people should achieve. Pose method is one of those. Chi running is another one. But we're going to collectively disagree that <laughs> that there's a sort of a perfect method so talk more about that what's wrong with these formulas for running form well i think anytime you try to pigeonhole we talked about this in our last podcast i think anytime you try to throw everybody into the pot and say it should all be a certain way i think that's a problem and technique systems are always based on that if you come up with a technique that implies that everybody needs to do something the same way and people just aren't built the same way structurally they have different strength and range of motion limitations um, all of that stuff plays into what your best running form looks like and so to say, for instance, that everybody should run on their midfoot or everybody should run in a certain cadence or these things that you hear all the time now is really doing kind of a disservice to people who don't understand running biomechanics, which most runners don't. I mean, a lot of people don't know their quads from their hamstrings, much less, you know, what midfoot strike is supposed to mean. So I think it's a real problem that, that the information is, is free flowing on the Internet, that there is one ideal way to run because not everybody is built like a Kenyan. Therefore, not everybody's going to look like a Kenyan when they run, nor should they try to run like a Kenyan. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about it. And I think it I think one of the problems, too, in the industry is that a lot of the wearable data that's out there now gives you feedback based on what they think the ideal form should look like. Um, I think, you know, there's a particular shoe company that starts with in and rhymes with Uten that has a <laughs> <laughs> you know sort of thinks that everybody should all run on their forefoot and they put the lugs on there so I just you know I think that's a real problem because people just aren't built the same way the other thing on that point you mentioned the Kenyans it's frankly I've seen Kenyans that have bad running form that's that quote still unquote, running, right yeah that, quote unquote or bad. At least it, that looks bad <laughs> right that are still running 205 marathons so who's to say that's bad right so but Digging down further into these sort of methods, the two that you most commonly hear about are the pose method and chi running. The pose method was invented by Dr. Romanoff, who's a Ph.D. scientist from Russia. He was actually trained when Russia was still the Soviet Union, got a Ph.D. in, in physical education, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, has a different connotation for us <laughs> than I think it did there at the time. 
but he invented his method in 1977, but it didn't really gain prominence as a running method until the 2000s. There was a study that was done by Dr. Romanoff and Dr. Tim Noakes in 2004, at least the, the abstract was published in 2004, that basically said that, or at least that they often reference, and it says that if you use the pose method, then you're going to reduce the impact and loading on your knees by 50%. You'll see that study quoted often on the pose site and in a lot of the articles that Dr. Romanoff has written and or been quoted in. And so whenever I see science, I want to drill in. So I actually went and found the abstract <laughs> and I wanted to look into it because I'd also seen some opposing views on it. The interesting thing that that doesn't get mentioned, and I'll read it straight from the abstract, from literally the words of the, the scientists themselves, that doesn't get mentioned is the following. It says, in from the abstract, quoting, the knee power absorption and eccentric work were significantly lower in pose than in, other, than in either heel toe or midfoot running. In contrast, there was a higher power absorption and e eccentric work at the ankle in pose compared with heel toe and midfoot running. So that's what the abstract says. Now, in the commercialization of the pose method, Dr. Romanoff has talked about that first sentence, which is that knee loading is 50% less. The problem with pose is the second sentence, which is that if you take it off the knee, then it goes somewhere else. And what it, you actually find if you read even further into the study that it shifted from the knee to the ankle or the Achilles. So the load didn't just go away. It just shifted. And, and it shifted to a place that people hadn't been prepared to deal with. So these runners in their study actually end up having Achilles problems. Even though they were loading their knee less, they just shifted that load somewhere else. So that's one of the problems with pose is that you're not really doing anything more than just moving the forces around. And if your body's not trained to absorb force like it is in the knee somewhere else, then you have a problem, right? That's exactly right. And that's... That's why we watch people run and why we work with people on their mechanics because you really, that's, you hit the nail on the head. Two things I think you said were, were important. One is that when Dr. Romanoff invented the technique and anytime you invent a technique for human movement, that's a problem because, <laughs> you know, you can, that's, that's not how the body works. Um, but I think it's really important that exactly what you said is true, that people understand that you can't take a force away. I mean, Force is mass times acceleration, right? So if you're going to decrease the force, you're going to have to decrease the acceleration because the mass is going to remain constant. So you can't just take this force away by magically, you know, changing the foot strike and, and having other muscles work and expect that you're not loading another part of the body. So that's exactly what happens is people tend to end up with things like Achilles problems or, you know, ankle issues or whatever when they move to this because it causes them to strike on their forefoot and stay on their forefoot for the entire portion of, you know, the gait cycle that's when you're in stance phase um, and propulsion. And I think the other thing, just in talking about the, you know, quote unquote research on pose method, if you go to the pose method site and pull up the 30 articles that they have listed there, he's, Dr. Romanoff is the, one of the primary authors on all of them, or the ones that he's not a primary author on, they talk about uh, the, the, the decrease in load on the knee, 
But to your point, that second part about the increase on the load to the ankle is nowhere in sight. So I think it's just a really important thing that people understand the full picture if they're going to. There are bits and pieces of this technique that are great. Yeah, people need to work on their posture. And the idea that they, if they lean forward a little bit, they can harness the extensor side of their body and really engage their their calves and their hamstrings and their glutes a little more efficiently. That's true. But to say that you need to run with this certain type of technique, really, um, I think it, it muddies the waters and people's p- ability to understand why they should be working on things like posture. And they don't really discuss too much <clears throat> what variable speeds are going to be affected at in their method either, do they? They have one basic form yeah. for... Not- yeah. Multiple pace. Yeah. Runners running with multiple paces, which changes your gait and changes how you'll strike. So um, if you run a hundred meter dash, unless you're 99 years old, you will (laughs) run with different mechanics than if you were running an easy run. And um, that one cycle or that one way of running is not going to be the same right and they and it, they don't they don't address speed they also don't address distance at all and to your point 100 meter dash you're probably going to be on your forefoot because your calf you know that's a it's an efficient way to run for a short period of time but the problem is you ask somebody to go run a marathon or think about an ultra runner running on their forefoot for an entire 50 miles think about the stress on the metatarsal heads during that the the achilles tendon all of these things you're not you're you're stressing an area of the body that's not meant to take a load for that long a period of time yeah when i coached collegiately we i was always excited to see the athlete that was a, what i called a prancer because they were on their toes they were able to their 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 cadence cycle was was they're very powerful their cadence but they could keep their cadence up at a high rate and you could see the mechanics that were going to be effective for an 800 meter runner and then know that those same gait techniques that were natural as we've talked about were different for the 5k runners yeah um and were definitely different for the 100 meter runners and therefore we how in the world could there be one method when there are different distances different speeds different people to speak of nothing of how the human body of each of us is different. Yeah. look at everybody's thumbs are everybody's yeah. thumbs exactly the same right are our eyes the same so right yeah so that's myth number one there is no one running form <laughs> the second which you started to allude to is this idea that midfoot strike is the best way to run chi running actually puts a big emphasis on strike foot strike and Really, truly emphasizing that midfoot strike. Interestingly, when you actually look at studies, there's a Japanese study on elite level athletes where they looked at the foot strike of 200 elite athletes. And 75% of them in the study actually were heel strikers. <laughs> and a smaller percentage were midfoot and an even smaller percentage were forefoot. But this idea that midfoot is the perfect answer is crazy. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, and it really ties nicely to what we just talked about because midfoot strike works for a lot of people, but it just changes the load. So if you're running, if you, if you strike on your rear foot and, and I think it's, important to also clarify that being a rear foot striker is not an inefficient way to run. It's if you strike with your very strongly on your heel with your leg fully extended in front of you. Yeah. That's overstriding, and that's very hard on the knee, and it's very inefficient. But you can strike on your rear foot when your foot is moving back towards being underneath your knee. It's a very efficient way to run. Not only that, the calcaneus is made to absorb shock. 
there's a something about a, the calcaneus of a hundred hundred pound woman is as strong to, can take as much load as a 350 pound gorilla like it's it's made to be able to absorb shock and deform and reform and do all these things so it's not an inefficient way to run but but what happens is a lot of people also overstride and also land with with too much extension in their knee which loads the knee so people blame that heel strike but it's really the overstride and the straight knee and the lack of flexion in the knee when they land that's the problem so helping those people bring their foot back underneath them when they land a little bit uh, tends to help the load on their knee um, and makes them feel better but it also again the further back you come with the foot strike the more the ankle is loaded so as long as you can tolerate that load at the ankle mid foot strike can be great but if you move it too far back into the forefoot then all of a sudden you load the achilles tendon so you got to find the happy medium and you got to find where people's uh, where they can tolerate the load. Because if they can tolerate the load at the knee, they might do okay with the rear foot strike and a little longer stride. And then they're not having to turn over quite as much. So I, it just, you know, I think you got to look at, somebody has to understand how they run and most people don't. And I think that's part of the problem too. They, they may think they're a midfoot striker. They may think they're rear foot. They, don't, they really don't know. Um, and so they listen to all this data and they think that they have to strike in their midfoot and they start working on it on th- themselves. And then they end up with an issue in their ankle and they don't really know why. Well, right, because they're trying to change, change <laughs> <it>. yeah. <laughs> without really understanding what's going yeah. on or what they need. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's the second myth. Midfoot strike is is not the end all be all. No, of it foot can strike. work for a lot of people, but it's not. It doesn't need to be the only way that people run. The third one is, is at least as our list goes, maybe my favorite, which is that you can't change your form by thinking about it or going to a one hour running form clinic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people I think have this perception that if I just go to a form clinic, get a few tips from somebody who's been trained in a method, then I'll magically walk out and be and have better form. Or if I think about it, you know, and I always tell my runners when they ask me, hey, I need better form. What, what should I do? I tell them I might give them some tips to think about over the course of a stride or an interval, but you can't think about running for so long distances your body you know that's a subconscious movement that starts to play out and so you can't consciously think about running for as long as we run and change things not to mention as we just said you often don't know what's happening even though in your mind you think you know what's happening so talk about that point i think that's that's exactly at the heart of it all is people just don't know if people knew what they look like when they run they wouldn't look so ridiculous, right? Like you go onto the trail <laughs> and you see like, wow, that's crazy. People have no idea. We have no, none of us. This and is so why we all hate our, <laughs> our photos. Nobody likes <laughs> their race photos. Nobody, and pe- people fight us all the time on coming in and getting their gait looked at because they really want to know. But that's the only way you can understand it is by looking at yourself do it. And once you understand where your weaknesses are and what's going on and why the mechanics have gone awry, then you can actually start working on it. But the proprioceptive system is a crazy thing. And I mean, it's going to, it's your body's proprioception, meaning your body's awareness of itself in space. And we aren't always all that great at that. And especially if you're not working on things like balance and some of the stuff we'll talk about later, your body just doesn't really know how to stabilize itself and where it, where it is in space. And as you run, like you said, you get tired, you get fatigued, then you start to rely on other muscles to stabilize your body. And you just, I don't think that people really have a a full awareness about about what's going on when they run i think that's the biggest thing you can't just say well i want to i want to look like a kenyan i'm going to go out there and run and then all of a sudden you look like a kenyan that's not not how it works so unfortunately well, the, <laughs> it's also that 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 uh, chris you stated you can't think about it for that long but it's 
it completely inefficient from a long-term perspective to be making a mechanical making a an adjustment to your mechanics over a considerable period of time and being able to keep your energy level up i mean you just cannot you can't keep thinking and physically doing an act high right. lift what would people say lift your knees uh, good right. luck <laughs> right. right i mean how long are you right. gonna lift your knees for <laughs> right. and, right. and where is that as we said everything costs something everything comes from somewhere and goes yep. to somewhere else so that means you're pushing off the ground with more power <laughs> yep. in order to get your knees up yeah so there you go yeah like, uh you know i know i do know in my role as a coach frequently um uh, I, I sort of cheat by saying when people ask me what, how they can change their form, I'm always like, keep running and we'll see. Um, and, <laughs> right. and then over time, what happens is you start to get, understand where their idiosyncrasies are, where their weaknesses are, and then you can start to direct them in the direction of saying, okay, this is probably happening or that is probably happening. But even then, no matter what I say verbally, they're not going to be able to change it unless they have some kind of procedure and process yeah. that they retrain what's going on physiologically yeah. so um it's almost i like to tell people fixing it is fixing it in your mind is worse than just doing what you're doing no matter what you're doing naturally it's way better than the adjustment you'll make in the short term yeah over the long term yeah that's a very different thing which we'll yeah. talk about later too yeah it's uh, kind of to me uh, the another analogy i would use is kind of sort of like the reason why I know Tiger Woods will never be as great as he was, aside from the back issues and the, the issues he's had his, in his personal life, is that he's changed his swing, I think, three times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you think about the muscle memory associated with a golf swing and, and the fine-tuned nature of that movement so that a ball travels the way it does for him, and you think about changing that, it takes thousands upon thousands of repetitions to cement that change into your movement patterns so that you're not having to think about it or worry about it or, or slip back into old habits or whatever it may be. And so he'll never be the same because he's changed his swing. He, he doesn't have the opportunity to recreate that, those cycles of, of muscle memory and, and kind of re-ingraining that swing into his, into his form like he did when he was 3 to 21. You and know. they're big changes that he made. Yeah. We're not talking about small changes. Yeah. They're they're substantive. And if think about Galen Rupp, who we've talked about a few times, when he runs a fifteen hundred meter race of a mile or a mile long, and he runs a half and runs a half marathon or runs a marathon, there's not an, an appreciable change in his mechanics. So he's running with a very similar mechanical style. He's just running with a wider with more push off and with a wider stride length because of the power he's putting out to run at a faster pace but mechanically from his head down to his toes he looks pretty much the same and if you're if you don't just if you're not looking at at, at his stride length yeah. other than that it's the same so yeah. for that same reason that you're making with the analogy of of uh tiger woods it's like that's he would never no matter what no matter how many things alberto zalazar would like to do to change <laughs> what Galen Rupp does, I guarantee you, he will not be doing major adjustments to his mechanics. I we uh, we always tell people in the clinic that you know the best time to work on your run is while you're not running, and I I think that the worst time to work on your run is you know to, to when you're running, especially for long periods of time. And I always think about people 
you have to solidify those neural pathways like you talked about. That's how plasticity works. And if you think about your run kind of or your your mechanics kind of like walking through a big grassy field, if you take a different path every time, you're never going to wear down that path and your body's never going to learn that path to where it's instantaneous and you don't have to think about it anymore. So you have to practice the components of running while you're not running to be able to string them together so that your body knows how to do it without you having to think about it. Here, here. All right, so that was number three. You can't change your form by just thinking about it or going to a uh, one-hour clinic taught by a, a pose certified coach. <laughs> All right, number four, and this one's probably counterintuitive for some people, so I'm curious to get your take on this, Dr. Davis. If I do more squ- squats and core work, my form will improve. We're saying that's a myth. It's not just about raw strength. Talk about that. Yeah, so I think it's kind of along the same lines of what we were just talking about with building muscle memory, neural pathways, your body, yes, you have to have the strength. If you've, if you've never done any strength work for a muscle, it's probably not going to be strong, but you have to also train the muscle in the context of the functional movement so that it, it can work the way that you're, that it's designed to work and that you're trying to get it to, to fire and to work you know, to, to be stronger within the context of that movement. Um, I think the best analogy I tell people, and sometimes people depends on the audience, but you know, if, if everybody that was strong was a good runner, CrossFitters would be amazing, right? They'd be breaking but, world records. Right. But have you ever seen them win a marathon? That just doesn't happen, right? Because they've got tons of strength and they do squats and lunges and all these really great glute strengthening exercises. And yet, we watch a lot of people who are very strong in their glutes run and they're, they're not very efficient. They've got all kinds of problems and it's just because their body doesn't really know how to use those muscles in a, in a functional context. So uh, gait training and understanding how to use the muscles has to be part of the equation. Plus a lot of times the muscles people work on when they're strengthening are the ones you can see. Yeah. <laughs> the big vanity muscles. And those muscles have as little to do with running as almost anything. It's all the little tiny ones you can't see, the ones you don't get any glory in a swimsuit by working (laughs) that are important. All right, let's go to the last myth, and we'll jump into some common problems. So the last myth is that the 180 steps per minute is the magic cadence. People often hear that when they talk about form. Newton espoused that significantly when, when they were... Uh, really going, going, pushing with form in their running shoes is that the magic cadence is 180 steps per minute, and that's that's it. Everyone should strive for 180. Chi running also pushes for that number with their with their methodology. So, talk about cadence and how that plays into running form. So this is a huge thing. I mean, anywhere you look, you can see talk about cadence and how you need to run at 180 and how you need to turn over faster and you need to shorten your stride. I mean, that is the thing that everybody tells their runners. It's every, you can read it on the internet, you can read it in runners world, you read it everywhere. But I, I'm not even sure where this concept came from. I don't know if you guys know for sure. I, I, from my understanding is that that there was a book by Jack Daniels that he looked at runners in the 84 Olympics that ran the 5,000 meters and his observation was that those that were very elite and that were winning were running over 100 or 180 plus uh, at a cadence of 180 plus. And so 
somewhere along the way, people have glommed onto this concept that you have to run 180 to be efficient. And, you know, wearable technology takes that and says, ah, 180. And coaches take that and say 180. But really what the cadence thing does and the way that we use it is as a tool because you can increase or decrease somebody's cadence if you're for instance if somebody's having knee pain and you say okay well you overstride one of the tricks is to increase their cadence and typically to increase their cadence that tricks their body to bringing their foot back underneath them a little bit more so it decreases that overstride decreases their knee pain but it's in no way about the cadence being the magic thing it's about where they're now landing and so it's a it's a great tool but people just have this idea in their head that they need to run at 180 or they're inefficient and it really can mess with their stride i mean it's just a cue it's a cue it's exactly <laughs> yeah. a cue there's it's a big difference between a cue and a me- a, a sort of major principle of right. of, of mechanics or right. training in some way yes. right well, and you're going to have some people with really short legs. You yep. know, I have, a, I have a girl in my group has really short legs, longer torso, and her cadence, if you look at her Garmin data, is 200 plus. Yeah. And that's probably about right yeah. for her. And we've seen people all the time that, you know, run 190 and they overstride still because yeah. just because <laughs> of the way that they're built. So it's not, it's just, it's top of the bell curve data that has been extracted to be, and, you know, turned into something that it's really not. And it's, it's because people don't understand mechanics ultimately. Yeah. So yeah, well, we talked about the factor that now you're talking about world-class distance runners at the 5,000 meters. Right. Uh, how how much right. applicability <laughs> to the average population? These gentlemen are running 13 minutes to 13:20 in the 1984. They were in yeah. that range. Yeah. Um, in the Olympics, they're probably running a little bit slower. Uh, that race, as I remember that race in 1984, there was a tactical things going on. It wasn't just go from the front. So um, there's a whole lot of other variables. Let's just say that. And yeah. when you cherry pick a variable, very frequently you're you're um, you're operating outside of, as you said earlier, what is human, what yeah. happens naturally. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It's a cue and it's one data point. You know, for some of my runners, I've used it as a signal that they might be overstriding when they pick up their pace. For example, I've seen a runner who was running about 185 at easy pace on easy pace runs. And then when he started doing workouts, his cadence would drop to 160 and and I could see it visually. It looked like he was overstriding, but the data was also telling me that maybe he's overstriding because he had that drastic of a change in his cadence. Does that mean it's a problem? I don't know. We have to look at the tape, right? <laughs> Actually videotape right. it and see. But but it's one data point you could look at that yep. might provide evidence that someone is overstriding when you look at that variation. But but again, it's not the end all and be all. And we're here to stand on this platform that we <laughs> <laughs> record on and say it's not it's not the only magic number to it worry about not. all right so those are our five myths next we're going to talk about four common issues you see in your clinic dr davis that i think a lot of people will be able to relate to or at least maybe they've heard people say this is bad or they know on their own body that they have an issue with this so what are the the four common things you see in the run lab clinic uh let's see well First, most common thing, which is the most common complaint of runners anywhere, is uh, is knee pain, as as you would expect. Uh, I think one of the biggest issues with knee pain is a lot of the stuff we've already talked about. It it can be from overstriding. It's ultimately because people 
oftentimes anyway, the, the reason is because they, they land with their leg a little too straight and then the quads are not able to eccentrically absorb the shock from the ground like they should be able to. And that just puts a lot of stress on the knee itself and the patellar tendon and everything uh, around the knee joint. And oftentimes the knee can have problems too because the hip is weak and because the pelvis is dropping and it puts a lot of valgus stress into the knee and that can cause a lot of problems too. So that's probably, those are probably the two biggest issues with why people end up with knee pain if you were to look at you know, most of the data points. One thing before you go on, mm-hmm. I think it's funny. We get a lot of people into our store that talk about knee pain and they ask about, well, I want some shoes that will prevent my knee pain. But there's also this sort of mentality, I think, from a lot of runners that knee pain with running is a given. That because you're loading the body and you're, you're putting stress in that way in your body, that your knees are just going to hurt. That's just part of the deal. But really and truly, it's not. <laughs> it means that something's not quite right. You don't have to just live with knee pain as a runner. We're here to declare. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely, I always, I always tell people that, you know, it's not running that's bad for your knees. It's bad running that's bad for your knees. <laughs> so if you can you solve the mechanics there problem, you then you can take stress off the knee. And yeah, you don't have to have knee pain just because just cause you run. Do you find that the that the experience level of a runner will affect knee pain is are you seeing more of an uh, an advanced level runner having it or not having or a beginner runner having it or not having it i would say beginner runners yes because they they don't understand their bodies very well they're usually a lot of them get into running to get fit and they're not really necessarily prepared you know fitness wise to actually be able to run so they have they don't have the strength not load appropriate yes exactly so so that's a big one and then i think as people get more experience and they they learn what it feels like a lot of people just naturally figure out what it feels like to overstride and they stop doing it because once they shorten things up or or solve the loading issue themselves just their body doesn't want to hurt so it's not going to do things that that hurt it um a lot of them get a lot better until they start to do things like increase volume like crazy or you know people that are getting into new distances we see it a lot there if you're bumping up to the marathon and you're used to just running halves or you know there's a there's a big uh tipping point at that 40 miles a week spot if people people can do pretty well up to 40 miles a week and then once they get above that if you're really not working on all the you can kind of fake it I guess up to 40 and then once you get past that point if you're not working on the strength and the other issues the mechanics issues tend to have a lot more problems from an injury perspective when my I coach a pretty advanced level group and when my athletes tell me that they have knee pain I'm like stop running because at that point the knee is um, they're experienced they've running they're running in the 40 to 60 mile per week range yep. and they're very experienced and so if they do have knee pain something really bad is happening um, and they need to stop that- whereas if it's plantar or other little things like that I'm like well you you probably need to get it addressed but we can probably squeeze through the next training cycle all right and get where we need to be but when they tell me I've got a knee problem I'm always like yeah, that's yeah. Stop. <laughs> Go yeah, to Run that's Lab. Good. That's good Go advice. get it looked at. Something's happening. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like you know, it's not like runners blow out ACLs. And I mean, there's not this lateral component. Um, so it's usually a patellar tendon issue, mm-hmm. or it's usually a hamstring. You know, not even a hamstring. All that. We'll get into that here in a second. But it's usually patellar tendon, and it's either an overload issue or just you know they've tweaked something in their mechanics or they've upped their volume or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. so you're right. I think it's it's smart to get that figured out quick because a lot of times you can turn it around really fast. It's not something that has to be this. Oh, now I can't do my race or I have to really reduce my training volume. You just got to get it figured out. Yep. So 
knee pain from overstriding. What's next on your list of most common issues? Common issues. Uh, so a lot of people, we talk about the hip drop thing and the stress on the knee from hip drop. We glutes, I guess, is what most people equate it to when they think of hips dropping. It's a huge one. We see that because most of us, and especially a lot of runners, do everything in the sagittal plane. So they're not spending a lot of time training their lateral movements and their, you know, their side to side movements. Um, And we'll talk, I know, a little bit about how to do that later. But I think that that's a big limiter for people who don't cross train and don't do other sports because they're always just doing everything in one plane. So the hips get weak and then you see a lot of hip drop side to side in a lot of people. Um, But I think that important thing to note is that people can also compensate for hip drop very well so they may have weakness in their glute medius which really stabilizes the pelvis and and can be the contributor to that hip drop if it's weak um but there are a lot of compensation mechanisms so people can think oh i don't have hip drop i'm you know i'm i'm good my hips are strong my glutes are strong but there's a lot of compensation mechanisms that can cover that up so i think it's a really important not only part of what we do looking at your gait, but also strength testing things individually so we understand where those weaknesses are and kind of how it all comes together. I'm a really good compensator for my hip drop. <laughs> just just a little confession yeah, yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can't hide hip drop after 18, after 18 yeah. miles. Yep. So uh, you want to see someone's mechanics, the wor- them at their worst, get them over an 18-mile run, and you will, you will immediately begin to see problems. <laughs> all right, so hip drop and then... I think we had the next on the list was another one of my issues, <laughs> which is a crossover step, sort of the, the feet crossing over the center line. Yeah. And that's that's a really common thing, too. And it can be related to the same reason, because some of the same muscles that control your your pelvis and keep it from dropping also are the muscles that keep your leg from internally rotating and crossing across midline and doing these other things. So a lot of that crossover step goes along with hip drop. Um, and they, they're coming from the same, the same issue, but I think it's important to note that guys tend to cross over a lot earlier than women do as far as speed goes. So guys will cross over at a lot slower slower pace um than women because they tend to ha- be m- more on the uh, it's called genu varus or uh, kind of cowboy legs as opposed to knock knees so you know women tend to be on the knock kneed side and men tend to be on the the cowboy leg side and so it just causes because you have varus in your tibia it swings your foot towards midline faster um also men's pelvises are, are, are narrower so it just there's a lot of things that predispose a man to crossing over midline and it, it's still being a normal gait not something that's you know worrisome at all um, but if it falls into that kind of worrisome category, we're crossing over, you know, where you're running very slowly or as a female until you get pretty fast, you really shouldn't. Be, and pretty fast, meaning, you know, in the six, six minute mile range, um, you really shouldn't be crossing over uh, due to the structure of most women's legs. So if you are some of the problems that can cause, it can definitely give you issues uh, at your hip, but also particularly IT band because it's putting a big stretch on that outside of your knee as you're coming across midline. So definitely is something that needs to get solved if it's outside the norm. It's just hard to know for your own body if it's outside the norm unless somebody kind of guides you on that. So it doesn't mean you want to go start trying to fix it just because you may have it. It may be normal for you depending on your body type. I can tell you one way to know is when you start clipping your other leg. Yeah. <laughs> as you come back through, yeah. that happens to me occasionally, especially as I get fatigued. And I know that I know that's a sign for me that I know I need to stop the workout. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm so fatigued that I'm starting to Yeah, clip, when you've got mud on the inside of your calf own, when you come back, yeah, it's my a own calf as I come back through. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's one way to know. All right, so crossover step and then the last thing you see commonly or at least people claim commonly to come in 
with issues of is what? Uh, so hamstring flexibility is, so people come in for, for issues and they talk to me about their tight hamstrings. I think this also almost falls under the myth category because most runners think that they have really tight hamstrings and then I'll get them on the table and take their hamstring or their, their leg up to 90 degrees with no problem at all. So if you consider, you know, how often when you run, do you need to get your leg up to 90 degrees? If you're not a hurdler, it's pretty much zero. So having that much hamstring flexibility, one, is not entirely necessary, and two, can really almost be a bit of a detriment because if you have a lot of flexibility, you sacrifice stability for that. So the, so you want just enough flexibility to get through a normal gait cycle and have normal range of motion in your hips, but not so much that your body's having to work extra hard to stabilize it. And then the other thing, so runners always stretch their hamstrings and they do, you know, they do a lot of yoga, downward dog, and all this stuff to stretch their hamstrings, but a lot of them really neglect the front side of their body and so they end up with really flexible hamstrings or at least, you know, pretty flexible hamstrings and then really tight hip flexors and quads. I mean, we all sit all day. And so all that stuff tightens up. So you end up with this real imbalance of the muscles that attach to opposite sides of your pelvis. And so it can pull your pelvis forward. Pulling your pelvis forward can put a functional tension on that hamstring and make it feel like it's tight. But it's really ultimately not the hamstring that ends up being the problem with, I would say, probably 90 percent of the people that come in and tell me their hamstrings are tight. So it's just an interesting thing. People Again, they don't quite understand their own bodies, but there's a lot more. I mean, if you think about it, how often do distance runners pull a hamstring? Like that doesn't, you know, it happens in the sprinting world, but it's not a common thing because one, you don't need that much range of motion to run marathons. Furthermore, if you look at like my little uh, uh, Shane and Lucas, my guys that run uh, 800 mile, I mean, those guys are four minute milers and they can't even touch their kneecaps. I mean, their hamstrings are super tight, but if you watch them run, their leg is up at 90 degrees because functional, or uh, I guess the way I kind of term it and I'm, I don't, it's static range of motion versus dynamic range of motion. I think there's, there's a big difference just because you can't touch your toes. Doesn't mean you can't run with very normal hamstring range of motion. So I think some people don't really understand. Yeah, I have had a lot of people tell me they pulled a hamstring in a 10-mile run, and I'm like, I don't think it's possible. Right. I don't know that you can Doesn't do that. Doesn't happen you, very, I mean, it, it's... I think there's an occasional person who has a, sure. a, a significant uh, tear-type scenario that was pre-existing or mm-hmm. that gets problem, that yep. the other tightness will then make that happen, but it's not, it's very rare. Yep. Um, what about, what about with the hamstring, the idea of nerve stuff and nervy things happening in the in the hamstring? Do you see some that a lot in your clinic i when i hear people talk about what's going on with their hamstring a lot of times i think it can't be it can't be so much muscular it must be something else what 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 role does sort of nerve based things have in the hamstring in the hamstring area yeah so that that definitely relates because the sciatic nerve passes right through there and so if you take it back to what we were talking about just a second ago where people's pelvis tends to get rotated forward because their quads are tight and their hamstrings are flexible what that does is that tensions not only the hamstring on on that back side but that's also where the sciatic nerve is and so that gets tensioned as well well nerves hate to be stretched and as soon as the nerve is stretched it starts to get pissed off and and fight back and you start getting these you know sciatica type nervy symptoms and a lot of times it's related to you know the area where the hamstring is but it's not really the hamstring that's causing it or the hamstring that's doing that so a lot of times you got to look at the front side and figure out what's going on it happened to me in december in a race i got my got all out of whack at, at decker my sciatic nerve got pissed off 
and sent signals into my hamstring to shut down. Yeah. <laughs> that felt like a tear or maybe a strain. Well, it was really just the nerve saying stop because I'm in I'm in pain. <laughs> yep. Something's making me do something I don't want. So it was sending signals to the hamstring to shut down. And it felt like the strain in the hamstring, really, the nerve had just become impinged essentially because my hip was tight. Yeah, and that can happen because it comes through where your piriformis and all these other muscles in your hip are. So the problem can be coming from up top and people don't really, or even the low back and people don't realize that it's starting there. It just feels like the hamstring because there's a real big correlation with people having those types of symptoms symptoms, and also having the hamstring, like you said, kind of spasm up and try to protect the area and, and get pissed off so it feels like a hamstring problem when all actuality it's something else entirely. And as with most thing with as it relates to running related injuries, I always tell my runners where the pain is, is probably not the problem. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. just the weak link it's in the chain. True story. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you got to look for the problem. The, yep. sim- the symptom is, is usually not the source. So yep. you got to go find the source elsewhere. All right. So those are the common issues. Now let's talk about what people can do about it. I've kind of got five different things that we've summarized. No brainer things people can do. The first one is, quite simply come see you at run lab or another form (laughs) expert and i know we talked about this when you were on in episode four but give people a quick overview of what happens when you come to run lab yeah so we're a we're a sports medicine clinic entirely for runners that focuses on gait training and biomechanics at the heart of everything we do um, so we bill insurance for it and people come in and we will do a full body gait assessment, shoes, barefoot. Um, we, uh, we do a, a bunch of strength tests too, so that we can figure out where the strength component, how that plays into everything. Uh, and then we come up with a plan and figure out what they need. Do they need range of motion work? Do they need strength training? Do they need gait training? What do they need? And we kind of come up with a, with a big plan for it all. And a lot of it has to do with watching yourself on video in slow motion. Yeah. Which is insightful, <laughs> horrifying, <laughs> and, and horrifying. also awesome. <laughs> what, yeah, and I've and I've and I've been through it, so I've I have the experience with you guys. But what what are you guys looking at? You know, a lot of the feedback I got had you drawing lines on my body and things like that. So, what exactly are you looking for as you go through the different screens of people moving in space? We're just looking at how all of the uh, how all of the joint angles interact with each other. You know, do people have enough flexion or extension where they're supposed to have flexion or extension in the hips and the knees and the ankles are are the you know does are people able to open up their hips enough to really engage the muscles they need to uh, you know are they doing we what we really are looking for is compensation patterns so if somebody comes in especially if they have pain you know what are they doing to compensate for that and why are they overloading that area that's giving them problems because if somebody's having a problem somewhere it's because they unless it was a traumatic injury um, they've overloaded the area and that's why they're having issues so we have to figure out why are they doing that a lot of people come in with you know, they'll end up having a leg length difference that they have no idea they had. And it was causing all kinds of stuff that never really reared its head until they got to a certain volume or mileage or whatever. And then all of a sudden they started having all these issues. So there's a lot of stuff that we look for and it just kind of depends on what the person's issue is. We deal with people too, who are looking to just increase economy and efficiency and performance development type stuff. And for them, we're just trying to smooth out the edges and see if there's anything glaring that could lead them down the road to injury. Um, But for the people that are injured, we're trying to look at why they area is loaded and how do we unload it so number one go see run lab yeah. pretty simple <laughs> just a short little plug there and then second people are often dismayed at me as a coach when i tell them this one of the best things you can do for 
improving your form is just to run more and run on a variety of surfaces, both terrains and elevation levels. We've talked about this before in our podcast on Miles Matter, but your body's basically looking to find its most efficient path. And when you have more experience running, your body tends to, f- to gravitate towards that, especially if you're running at easy paces like we talked about on that episode. But talk about running. You know, I know when we met, talking about my running and my issues with the crossover step and hip drop, uh, a couple of things that came up were running on trail as a good way to balance some of the muscles and then hill running. Mm-hmm. So what do you typically recommend from that standpoint? Yeah, so we definitely talked to a lot of people about those two things because trail running, like we touched on earlier, requ- requires so much lateral stability or at least working on lateral stability. Um, it's it's uh, It usually shortens up your stride a little bit. It just changes your mechanics in a good way and forces your body to work a little differently. I think the more varied input you can give to your body the more it learns to adapt and so being on a trail requires a lot of adaptation and your body is constantly having to be kind of on the lookout for what's the next step gonna entail and it really makes your body work in a cool way becomes I think you become a lot stronger overall um, as an athlete so I think trail running is great and then uh, and hills are awesome and the reason hills are awesome is because for a very short period of time you can trick your body into having amazing mechanics because to get up a hill you have to lift your knee high enough you have to be able to push off through your glutes into full extension and you have this mechanics that that looks so great and then we flatten out that hill for a short little bit of time your body knows how to run really efficiently and really well and so it's just you've got to have hills in your life on a regular basis to really kind of harness that that uh that training effect so how do you approach that is that something that's if you were going to write a, a prescription for hills what would it look like would it be like the trail running as many varied distances lengths speeds and those things or is it more do a shorter steep hill for a number of repeats with a walk down or what way do you usually prescribe a hill hills to folks if they wanted to add that in totally depends on where they're at you know because they can a lot of people can't tolerate a lot of hill work especially if they're brand new they just don't have the stability for it and they're going to end up with an injury so it depends on where they are kind of on the continuum of their running life but for people who are pretty advanced I think varying it up and having you know, I think the really short, steep ones really, really trick your body into having to get that knee really high and getting a lot of power through your glutes and all of those things. Um, but the longer, more gradual hills, you build you build the endurance side mm-hmm. that you don't get with the short ones. So I think that it's really great to vary it all. It just depends on kind of what your body can tolerate and where you are with things because it's also a recipe for, for injury if you don't have a little guidance and don't do it right. Yeah, we uh, in, at Team Rogue, we have in Austin, so many hills that we have no problem um, getting them on easy days, on hard days, on long run days. Um, And we also um, periodically in different phases in our training focus on doing either strides on a flat or strides on a hill. And we vary it um, a little bit uh, to be sure that when I take them over to the hill, we use Windflow Hill over here right around the corner. And it's amazing to see uh, beautiful mechanics when they're doing it, they're they're Isn't very it? tired. And they're like, why are we only doing four repetitions? Because that's all your body can yeah. handle is four repetitions. Yeah, which is a good point. Air on the shorter side with repetitions. And I also think if people are doing hill reps, you tend to know when your body starts to break down. Yeah. When you start to feel yourself hunch over, lean into the hill, that's when you should stop or even before that, really. So just pay attention to your form once it starts to break down. I think, too, people, people tend to 
at least I personally hate treadmill running and dealing, but I think for that purpose, doing workouts on a treadmill can be great because it forces you to keep your, your same speed, your same, you know what I mean? The same intensity and you do, you know, when you're done. And I think that the, that's one way you can use treadmills if you're stuck running on a treadmill to really get a great workout in a short amount of time. So one, see run lab two, run more and run with more variety three. And we've talked about this before, Steve. So I'm actually going to take this one to you. Do strides, weekly strides. Yeah, I think it's uh, I, I've been inputting strides into my training protocols um, since I was six years old uh, personally. And then also you, with every athlete that I've ever coached, um, you know, it, it, I'm a big believer um, where and when you can to doing barefoot strides because they require you to um, really uh, get into the right mechanical position for yourself. Um, but you need a soft surface to do that on. So sometimes it's hard to find that. Um, we don't do them here at Rogue very often on a soft surface. Um, uh, even our even our track facilities at occasions are sticker burr filled and, <laughs> and make it difficult to get on barefoot. We do a lot of them on a very flat section, but I, I'm a huge believer that putting the body through stresses at a much greater level for short durations is like strength training is like when we talk when you talked about doing hill work that hills are speed we say that very often they're just speed in disguise um speed work is strength work in disguise so doing strides and things like that are a way of and if i get a chance to i spy my athletes while they're doing them and i try to stand (laughs) out and see them it gives me a chance to use a few verbal cues to say bring your chin down um try to lower your arm carriage and you know this, Dr. Davis, that those are not really very important things necessarily of putting your chin down or dropping your shoulders or bringing your hands down. But they are cues that allow the person to begin to uh, facilitate other movement patterns that can create the kind of success we're looking for. Sometimes I'll tell my runners when they're doing strides, I, either one of two things, either I want you, they pound the ground excessively. I say, sneak up like an Indian behind someone. I don't want to <laughs> hear your feet, right? Don't, I don't even want to hear your feet at all. <laughs> Sounds and a- that appropriate. That really, it really works. <laughs> and they, you know, I tell you what, when you tell them to do that, they're like, cha-ching, I, I can get that, you know? Awesome. Um, and another one is to push off the ground. You know, just push off the ground. Push your, push the back of your foot. Try to, don't try to kick your butt, but push so hard that you feel like your butt might be getting kicked. And that's a very important distinction to make. You don't want them to start butt kicking um, in their strides. But, you know, the stride is, um, in my opinion, one of the single most effective ways of getting yourself uh, ready to and also to start beginning to turn over where your problems are. Because when you stride, if you've got some giddy and some things that are hurting or things that are feel unusual, then they've got a great opportunity to, to address those things um, either in a cross training or a weight training methodology or um, through various cues and other things that we can occasionally use. So strides. Yeah. The fourth is something I do with, with my athletes before every workout that we do, and that's running drills. Most people would recognize this in the form of high knees and skipping and bounding and some things like that. I see you guys at Run Lab use drills a lot when you're rehabbing folks because basically what you're doing there is getting them to break down the components of the stride into smaller movements and then through repetition learn different movement patterns. One of the things I say to my athletes, because oftentimes, especially if they're new to me, 
and we go through our drill sequence, which we, which we do every week. A lot of them look awkward, very awkward doing it because they're not used to it or maybe they're just not ath- actually that athletic, but they've gotten into running. And so what I tell them, I said, if it's awkward doing that skipping drill and you find it that difficult, then imagine how awkward and difficult and inefficient that is manifesting in your actual running stride because that's a signal <laughs> that you have inefficiency in the in the course of putting it all together in a, in a running stride. So talk about drills and how that works into your rehab component. Yeah, I think you I think you uh, hit it right there when you said we just we break it down into components and then through repetition teach the body how to do the movement and then you incorporate it into the run. I think uh, you know you have to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. I think it's it's breaking it down into movements that are digestible pieces that people can understand and under you know teach their bodies and then move it into the running. I think it's interesting because. If you think about coming from kind of the triathlon world, swimmers are awesome about drills. They'll do 40 minutes of drill sets and then 20 minutes of swimming or whatever. And as runners, we just go out the door and run until we fall over and then we're done. We, <laughs> you know, pat ourselves on the back and say, great. And it, I, uh, there's so much that goes into running that can be broken down into drills that I, I think people really need to be doing them pretty much every time they run. One of the big things we teach people is just a series of, um, of it's called our dynamic warm up, And it's a lot of movements to, to work on foot strike and just the foot's engagement with the ground. Like Steve said, I think barefoot stuff is really, really important. And I, I think it, it teaches your entire foot how to work because you figure that's your only piece of your body that is you know bearing your weight and stabilizing your body with the ground it's super important and people just think they're just gonna put on a shoe and run so i think the barefoot side of things is very important too as far as drills go so see run lab run and run with more variety strides drills the last thing we'll mention will which we'll mention with a bit of an asterisk which is strength work we've already said that just pure raw strength work isn't necessarily going to do anything until you can put that into action yeah. in, in the context of movement so if I were to recommend to someone or to say that someone has hip drop issues and maybe that's from a glute, weak glute, what kind of strength work, dynamic strength work would you recommend? I think the biggest thing that people can do to help with that is anything balance related, single leg stability, because running is really just balance over time with speed I mean you have to be able to balance 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 from one leg to another and people can't even do that standing still in place with no load (laughs) and you know how are you going to translate into being able to run effectively if you can't do it in place so I think working on your balance and working because balance really is just your body stabilizing itself so when people say they have bad balance well they don't have neurologically bad balance they have weak muscles in their stabilizers so their body can't bear you know they can't stabilize itself over their hip and over their foot and knee and, and all this so I think that working on single leg stability work is is probably the best thing you can do for for hip strength and just for your running in general when people come into our store and they say, as I've mentioned, oftentimes they say they have knee pain. Some people will come in and also say, I need a highly cushioned shoe <laughs> to prevent my knee pain. <laughs> that, and they don't believe you when you tell them that actually may be the worst thing for them because a highly cushioned shoe is also really heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're just <laughs> adding weight to their already poor loading mechanisms. And so what I'll have them do in that situation is try to do a simple one-legged squat 
and they usually fall over. Yeah. <laughs> and then they Crazy. realize they <laughs> realize because of that instability, their muscles aren't doing the job, so the knee picks up the load and you get the pain. Yep. So there you go. Dynamic balance, stability work is is the key strength work to focus on if if you're just gonna pick something. But obviously go see Run Lab and figure out There's what your specific <laughs> issues <laughs> are yeah. so you're not just shooting <laughs> blind in the dark. Well that <laughs> ends our episode on running form. As we said our sort of summary here is that it's not necessarily about finding the perfect running form, but really finding the most efficient running form for you for how your body works. So hopefully you learned something today. Thanks for joining us in episode 12. As always, you can check us out on our website at roguerunning.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Rogue Running. We look forward to talking to you next time. Bye. Adios. <laughs>